1995. Um, fall of 1995. And that happened because I was exploring in my faith. Uh, my cousin and I were roommates at Moody Bible Institute, and we were in this prayer meeting one day, and God just started to move. And I didn't know it was God. I mean, it was at that point in my life when, if you've read, you know, uh, the book of First Samuel in the Old Testament, when Samuel hears this voice, I didn't hear a voice, but it was a little bit like that. It, we're, I wasn't sure it was God. Something moved inside me, and I said, like, I think we're supposed to have another roommate. And I told my cousin that. And he said, what are you talking about? What do you mean? We're going to have another roommate? I said, he said, we can't fit them in this room. It was a two-person room, and there are rules, you know, in this, in this college. And we said, okay, well, we've got to find a new room because we're supposed to have a new roommate. We actually moved to a new dorm all the way across campus, Dryer Hall as opposed to Culbertson. And uh, we, we prayed, and God said, okay, you've led Josh. And my cousin said, oh, my goodness, you've led Josh. This is great. We're going to move our whole dorm, you know, because God spoke to Josh by work, and who does Josh think he is? And what came out of that is that we got a freshman roommate. It didn't work out at all terrible roommate we didn't experience any sort of peace or joy in that room it was terrible and that roommate was tim deering that's true and we lived together for one year and i want you to know that for both of us we were each other's i think i tim had some pretty bad roommates but i I think tim was one of my worst roommates and i think i was one of his worst roommates that's that's really true hilarious isn't it but God had a plan for us, and we knew it. And, and midway through that year, we started to talk about the fact that we were not good roommates, but God had a plan for our lives. And we were starting to go, okay, there, there's something behind all this. And this was in a moment when I was starting to explore the fact that God can step into people's lives like this and actually start to say, okay, it's not just what's in the Bible, but it's actually some things that I want to direct you in in everyday life. The Holy Spirit does this, right? It's not that weird. It wasn't that strange. And yet, it felt strange. I was Baptist. And when I grew up, you know, we prayed at breakfast lunch, dinner, and bedtime, and that was it. You know, you kind of, that was the end. And you didn't expect anybody to talk back. And that was one of my first moments with God kind of talking back to me, and it was that you're supposed to have a roommate, and that roommate was Tim. Well, we went back, and I want you to know that we went back um, because we were going to pray for a church there. And I'll tell you a little bit about that. But before, but one of the things we did was we prayed back at that college where we both met. And we started to just feel God as we met. We met in between those two dorms that I lived in. Tim spent all of his time in that three-person dorm. But we met in the parking lot. And we started to pray. And we prayed and just poured our hearts out before God. A couple hundred years ago, well, hundred and... I'll say 130 or 40 years ago, there's this guy named D.L. Moody who knelt on a sidewalk in Chicago and said, God, I want you to give me this block for a school. And he, and he just knelt and prayed and said, God, I want you to do great things right here. And what came out of that was this massive juggernaut. Today, Moody is the largest contiguous landholder in the city of Chicago. They have like 22 acres. That's impossible to get. The city has granted them the right to shut down whole streets as they just kind of build and expand, and they have all sorts of territory there. And it's all because this one guy prayed. And we found ourselves praying, God, you didn't send us to Chicago. You had us start there, but you, you sent us to Pottstown, Pennsylvania. And we just met and asked God to bless Parker Ford Church in Pottstown. We had the most amazing prayer time, just blessing all of you, sitting in that parking lot, just saying, okay, God, you brought us from 1995 to 2014, and we're expecting that this year God's going to do great things in the life of our church and in the life of our community, and that he has a very, very serious expectation and a hope for what this church becomes and what our lives become. We got really serious about God on this trip. It was really something. If you thought this was a vacation, I want you to know, we slept about 10 hours between Saturday and Wednesday. I mean, it was just impossible. 
impossible how little we slept. We drove through the night Tuesday night. Our kids had some trouble. My kids had some trouble. And uh, Betty Hendrickson ended up watching Maggie for a day because she had the flu. And our, the, our neighborhood went crazy. They were ringing our doorbell at all hours of the night one night when Shelby was home without me there. And there was all of this different stuff that was going on. We had a little bit of difficulty with one of our neighbors. And all of this stuff, just the minute we left... and. It's about Tuesday morning, and Tim and I had decided, I wanted to tell you this story because it's, it's just, there's so much that happened, I can't tell you, I just want to give you snapshots, you know. But it's Tuesday morning, we had spent the whole night in this inner city church that my brother-in-law pastors, and we slept on the platform. This is weird, I know. And about two or three in the morning, we woke up, and there was gunshots outside, and, you know, it really started to get a little worried. I, I actually got a little bit afraid. I thought, oh, my goodness, I'm sitting in the building. is 100 years old, and it's creaking, and the, the, the stained glass windows are still lit up because of the orange mercury lights outside, you know, and it, the place is all illuminated. I'm sitting there going, oh, my Goodness, Lord, what are you going to do? And that morning I woke up and Shelby called me. It was real early and she said, Maggie just threw up. She's got the flu. I got an important meeting to go to work. I got I to get to work and I don't know what to do. And Betty Hendrickson was so kind as to come over, spend the whole day with Maggie. I called her. I don't know what time I called you, Russ, but Russ was a little bit. It was early. It was early. And I mean, just give the Hendricksons a whole lot of credit for this whole thing. But, but God, uh, in that moment, started to move. And just after the, I got off the phone with Betty, I, we had had a dark kind of moment, kind of figuring out what was going on with our family. I started to pray, and I, I put on some worship music, and I had this moment with God where I was just, I was pouring my heart out, and I was going, this is where you started to move in my life. This is Chicago, Illinois. I'm not supposed to spend my life in Chicago. This isn't a place I want to come back to, but it is a place where you started to move. And I saw God do amazing things in Tim, and I saw God do amazing things in me while I was there. And we saw some some things that changed the game for us spiritually and shaped the people that we are today. And so I started to pray into that, and I put on some worship music, and the Lord just kind of gave me a picture. And it was of this little girl, and she was walking to the front of the church I was in as I was praying. And, you know, this gang-filled neighborhood, it's half African-American and half Puerto Rican. And if you know anything about the stereotypes of those two ethnic groups, they don't easily get along. And they live next door to each other, and there's a lot of guns. Just a lot of guns. The gangs are so powerful that they have buildings, houses, apartment dwellings that are nicer than the other houses. If you're a middle-class person in this neighborhood, you can't make as much money as the gangs make. You know, you, you, we get this picture of, like, kind of broken people on the side of the sidewalk. And that wasn't it at all. These people have money. They're well-organized. It's organized crime is what it is, and they own the neighborhood. And so as we were walking, we had prayer walk the night before, and this guy actually came up to Tim and I, and he just offered us drugs right on the street. And he just, the fact that we were Caucasian, they told us, the fact that you're Caucasian in this neighborhood means the only reason you'd be here in the minds of the people here is that you're buying drugs. And this guy was like, here, you want a Tootsie Roll? And we're like, no. He's like, five bucks for a Tootsie Roll, and then you get something else with the Tootsie Roll, you know? And that's like this whole thing. And we were like, no, no, no. He's like, are you sure? Why are you here if you don't want the Tootsie? You know, it's this whole hilarious thing. So just after I got off the phone with Russ and Betty, I'm praying, and the Lord just gives me this picture. And it was so amazing, just amazing. And uh, of the things in my life, you know, I had a first tour at Parker Ford Church, and this is going to tie into that, so you need to kind of watch the different pieces of this story. But I saw this little girl walk up to the front of this church and just start to worship God. And she wasn't black, and she wasn't white, and she wasn't Latina. I couldn't tell what she was in my mind. I couldn't figure her out demographically. And she started to worship, and the worship was so sweet. I just heard this kind of worship in my prayer life, and I was like, wow. And then I, I so I kind of spent time before the Lord, just saying, okay, God, what do you want to do in this church? What does this mean? And he said, this is what the neighborhood would sound like if it worshipped me. And that's why your brother-in-law and your sister are here, to help this neighborhood worship God. 
And I thought about that, and I said, this is, this is authentic worship. We ended up spending time later that day pouring into Johnny and Bethany, that's my brother-in-law's name, and pouring into his life and just asking God to bless him as a pastor in this neighborhood. He's just, if you would have seen them, they're just worn down. The inner city culture they live in in the community, they're just beat up. And we came there at the right time. They said that. They said, we are just beat up. One of our elders just quit. We're going through a really tough time, and you're here to encourage us. That's amazing. We didn't know any of that when we set off, by the way. We just trusted God that he had a timing for this thing. And as we, as we sat there, we said, you know, there's this picture of worship that this church is supposed to experience, and it's not supposed to be a bunch of missionaries coming into the inner city worshiping. It's supposed to be people from this community that God has a plan for their lives, and they're supposed to lift him up, and they're going to, you know, you know, God doesn't have a picture that's the same for every church. Churches are different. They have personalities. They have uniqueness. And this neighborhood's supposed to be different than Parker Ford, and what this little girl sounded like was incredibly different than what I would have expected worship to sound like. And yet, as I prayed, I experienced all of this. And then, so I, I, later that day, we're praying with Johnny and Bethany, and Bethany said, this is amazing. Now, if you don't know this, some of you know, this is my black sheep sister, okay? She's nine years younger than me. She started doing tw- drugs when she was 12. And uh, she, she, uh, the, the principal of our Christian school, his kids sold her the drugs in sixth grade. And she started doing drugs and going downhill. And we prayed for years and years and years, all the way till she was 20, eight years where we just weren't sure which way her life was going to go. She, we, didn't, we didn't know which direction, drugs, alcohol, the, the whole gamut. And we prayed all these different things. And I actually moved from Parker Ford Church. I attended this church for a while. And I actually left this church and left my job at Vanguard because I had this moment where I, my sister and I had a conversation and she shared some things with me. And I actually said, you got to talk about this. And we went through this time. And it was just, it was a, it was a broken moment in our life. And uh, I realized that we weren't going to walk together as brother and sister again unless I gave something. So I quit my job. Literally, uh, when I realized this moment, I quit my job at Vanguard. I told Jay and Carol, I said, I'm going back to Michigan. I'm going to rebuild things with my sister. It was about that time, she was about 16 years of age, and all this stuff was going on, that she had a picture of a little girl who called her to come minister. And as I was talking about this worshiping girl in her church, she said, describe this girl for me. And I did. I described it. Not black, not white, not Latino. I was trying to describe this person. And she said, it looks exactly like this girl who, when I was 16, in the middle of all of this alcohol abuse and all of this drug abuse and all of this stuff that was going on in my life, it's as though God started to speak to me in the middle of that. And I wasn't, I wasn't sure it was God. And here I am. I don't know, 15 years later, and you're telling me that the same vision that I had, the same dream, the same picture, the same hope that I had all those years ago that God put in my heart, he said, she said, I think you're calling me back to the same thing. You know, I, I, I would never have told you that my sister, after those years, was going to be a pastor's wife and that she was going to disciple young women who were from this gang-ridden neighborhood in one of the most violent cities in America, but God just set her free. Isn't that amazing? And one of the things I just thought about is the, the, the way God tied this together, the whole trip we were on, was about, in some ways, God tying Tim and I back to our past and reminding us that you were called. You were called to go to this place. And it was about that time that we started to realize we were called to eastern Pennsylvania. We, we both wondered where we'd go. Tim wanted to go to Ireland. I don't know if you know that, but he had a whole idea that he was going to spend his life in Ireland. And I really would have rather stayed in Chicago. I love Chicago. But God called us, and there was this understanding. And we started to pray into that on this trip. And then the fact that God just kind of bookended this whole thing with my sister and the brokenness in our relationship. And we've walked through a ton of healing since then. But the fact that he showed me this picture of what he had shown her, she's an artist. She sees the world in pictures. And and as she was kind of seeing this, this little girl, she wrote it down all those years ago. And she's, 
I guess she's 30 today. Yeah, she turned 30 this year in January. So 14 years later, when she was 16, she had this picture and God did all this stuff and, and kind of focused her for a brief moment on the fact that she had a future. And when she got rid of drugs and alcohol, who knows what God was going to do? She didn't know at that point. And now she's here leading people to Christ in this rough neighborhood. My little three-year-old niece growing up in that neighborhood, three-month-old little nephew, first time I've ever seen him. So some of you really blessed us um, with prayer. Some of you blessed us financially. There's a few people who just gave money. We didn't ask for any money for this trip, and I wasn't expecting it, but we didn't pay any gas, by the way. People just started giving money, and that was really amazing. I didn't ask for it, and I was blessed by you. But I want you to know I really I really honor a church that allowed us that space just to spend a few days. And there, there have been increasingly just crazy calls of God lately, right? And we have, every time we've seen them actioned, God has done some amazing stuff. The people who went to Indonesia, they came back, and I don't know if you've watched them, but they are different. There's a difference in their quality and in their character. There's things that are happening. And when we're stepping out as a church in faith, I just feel like God is starting to move in our life in a way as a community of believers where you see just God changing the game for us. And so I just want to honor what you do as far as supporting us as pastors and tell you a little bit about that story. There's a bunch of other things we could talk about for those for those couple days in Chicago. It was just absolutely crazy. And Russ... Just thank Betty for me. That was amazing that Betty just gave up her whole day and spent the time with Maggie. She said Maggie talked to her for three straight hours that afternoon, by the way. And I thought, oh, my goodness. Oh, poor Betty. She's not here this morning because her ears don't work anymore. Uh, so anyway, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to go in and talk to Jonah. But I wanted to just give a little bit of a brief report. And I wanted you to hear some of the story about how Tim and I got here. You might not know that story. You might not know about how all of those things, uh, different things took place. And there's a lot of God stuff back there, a lot of stuff that is worth mining and reminding ourselves of. God, we thank you. And we thank you because, you know, our world is shaped by people who are crazy. The more I read it, you know, the, the people in the Bible were crazy people. They, they believe things, and the book of Hebrews chapter 11 reminds us again and again. I mean, how crazy was Abraham to leave a house, to never again have a roof over his head except for tents, and to live this life of prayer through all of the rest of his years, believing that you were going to make him a great nation. The book of Romans says that he hoped against hope. I love that phrase. He hoped against hope, believing that God was going to do more. And you did. You birthed a nation out of that, and you birthed uh, uh, healing for that nation as they broke themselves again and again on your commands, and you eventually took all of that brokenness and all of that kind of wayward walking, and you birthed out of it Jesus the Christ, and you changed the game for all of us through this one man who didn't walk waywardly. He walked perfectly, and he died on a cross, and he rose from the dead to prove and to win the possibility of life for us today. And God, we gather here on a Sunday morning because Jesus rose from the dead on a Sunday morning and because you birthed from crazy people who did many bad things and were also blessed to do many, many good things and experience you in powerful ways. In the middle of all of that, you did this great stuff. And the greatest of all of those things is that you birthed Jesus into the middle of it and it changes the game for all of us. And so we thank you. We thank you for your spirit that leads. We thank you for the fact that you have called us to more and that we continue to look at our life and realize that we easily shape our existence by our own size, what we believe about ourselves. But you actually want to shape who we are by something far greater, and that's who you are. And so we trust you, God, and we give our church to you and we give ourselves to you. And we say, Lord God, call us to faith. Help us to hear your voice and to walk it out. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The sermon is called An Unexpected Revival. And if we were going to call this whole sermon series something other than Jonah, we would call it unexpected because the whole life of Jonah is unexpected, right? I mean, he actually goes and leads a bunch of people to follow God by disobeying God. That's how it starts. 
God says, go witness to these people who are pagans and who are Gentiles, and they don't know me, so go to Nineveh. And he says, oh, I'll believe you, God. You spoke. I'll go the other way. Tarshish is in Spain. If you're looking, you know, uh, where he was headed in Nineveh, I think is in Iran or northern Iraq. I can't remember. But that's this way at least on my map, looking from my direction. And, and Spain's this way. And he gets in a boat from what is today Tel Aviv, and he goes that way. And he says, I'm going to take off over the Mediterranean Sea, and I'm just going to go the opposite way as God called me, because I don't want to go to a bunch of people who don't know God. That's messed up. Why would God call me to prophesy to people who don't even know about the Torah, Genesis, Exodus? They don't know anything about that. So he gets on a boat, and you heard that story in the week one, and what happens is that they end up throwing him overboard as a sacrifice because his God is angry. The creator God is mad at them, and he says it. He prophesies and says, yep, God's mad at me. Throw me overboard. It's a hilarious, ironic storyline, right? And in the middle of that, those people who are sailors on that boat, not Christians, not Jews, not, not, not people who are God followers, they're Gentile people who don't know God, what do they do? They stop and they worship God right on the deck of the boat. Once that thing stabilizes and they stop throwing all their cargo overboard and stop throwing Jonah overboard, they say, well, we got to worship. And Jonah's life in trying to escape God actually results in people following God. One of the things the book of Jonah is about is the fact that while Jonah is unexpected, he's an unexpected prophet and he prays from unexpected places and there's all of this unexpected nature to it. None of it's unexpected to God, right? He just works underneath all that stuff and says, okay, you want to go over there? I'm going to make some people worship me right there while you're on the boat. You think that you're going to get, get away with this? You're not going to get away with it. Okay, you think now you're going to die, Jonah. This is, you're will, willing to give up your life, and there's probably a little bit of a martyrdom complex. Okay, fine, God. I'm giving up myself. I'm going to die anyways. You might as well throw me overboard. And then the fish swallows him. <laughs> Who gets swallowed by a fish? That's such a, that's such a fish story, quote-unquote. That's such a fish story that that many people don't believe it actually happened. And whatever did happen, we know that Jonah had this moment of great prayer in the belly of the fish, and it spit him back up on land three days later. Jesus uses that to kind of launch himself and say, as Jonah was in the belly of the fish, right? And so he's up on the shore, and then God calls him again, and that's where we're going to pick up the story today. And we're going to find an unexpected revival, because I'll tell you what prophets never expected. They don't expect revival. Isaiah at one point is told, go speak to a people who are not going to hear you. <laughs> Just go, go, go talk to people who aren't going to listen. Why would you tell somebody that? Isaiah's life as a minister of the gospel of, of God, we won't say Jesus because Jesus is still in the future, but it's still the good news and God is still birthing this good news. All the way back in the days of Isaiah, people just looked at him and said no. And that was the life of prophet after prophet. Moses is rejected early on in his prophetness. And Samuel at points is rebelled against. And we could go on and on and on with people. Elijah at one point just says, I am suicidal. I am done. I don't want to be a prophet anymore. God, end my life now. Because what happens when people prophesy is is something other than revival. And so when we say an unexpected revival, just using the word revival with the word prophet is something in the Old Testament you don't see and you rarely see if ever and you rarely see it in Israel. And yet this story is going to take place in Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, which is the great empire of the day. And it's going to lead to a revival that's complete. How can you expect this? And of course, the least expectant person in the storyline is who? The prophet himself. This is the worst prophet in the Old Testament and he has the greatest result. You have to just laugh about that. Isaiah is going to prophesy for decades and never see what Jonah is going to see. When And there's only one sentence of prophecy in the whole book of Jonah. He does a very bad job of prophesying. And God changes the game for 120,000 people overnight. Isn't that amazing? 
Read with me. This is Jonah chapter 3. If you want to turn there in your scripture, it'll be in front for you. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. It's important that the writer tells us the second time. God has already talked to this guy. And did he believe him? Absolutely. So he ran the other way, right? Now he's going to say it a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. Notice that's the preaching language here. Call out against it the message that I tell you. What Tim and I do when we preach to you, hopefully, is we don't call out against you. That would be fun. And we're going to have a call out Sunday. I'm just going to start calling out people saying, you in the fourth row, I know what you did last night. You know, that's a, that's the kind of tone, right? I was joking with Michael last night about this interchange. And she said, what are you going to ask me? I'm going to say, I said, well, I'm going to ask about your greatest sin, for starters. And, and on the phone, it just, she was, on, I was, she was with another woman out for dinner and they were actually, I was on their speakerphone in the car and you could just hear both of them went silent, you know, like, I, nobody wants their greatest sin laid out, but that's what this guy was supposed to do, really. Your sins are before me, is what Jonah's supposed to cry out to these people. Prophecy is different than preaching in some ways and calling out against them, them was his call. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. He finally did what God told him. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. That means to go around, not to go through. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. There it is. Jonah's a prophet, right? He's in a list of twelve prophets that start with Hosea and end with Malachi. They're called the minor prophets in the Old Testament. Jonah's smack dab in the middle of them. He's one of the prophets. And if you read Obadiah or you read Joel or you read Hosea, you will read prophecies. When you read Jonah, you almost never read a prophecy. There's hardly any prophecy in this whole book. It's mostly a story about a prophet who does everything else but prophesy, right? So here's the one prophecy you read in the whole book of Jonah. It says this, Yet forty days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. You know how long Isaiah is? Isaiah was a contemporary of Jonah's. They lived at the same time. He wrote 66 chapters to people who didn't turn around their lives in any meaningful way that we can see. Jonah, one sentence to the Ninevites. One sentence. That was it. Yet 40 days in the city of Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh, what did they do? They believed God. They believed God. Sometimes I think it's easier to prophesy in street corners than in churches, and I think that's Jonah. That's what he experienced, right? Sometimes we in the church get used to hearing the word of God so much in our hearts. This is just free, but just think about that. The irony of the gospel is sometimes the worst sinner in the world, the worst incarcerated criminal can hear the gospel before those of us who sit in the church every Sunday and get accustomed to this place. Yet 40 days in Nineveh shall be overthrown, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, that's grief language, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh. This is where it stops, right? The king's powerful. Probably the most powerful person, at least in the western part of the world, if you're Counting China as the east, there might have been somebody more powerful. But in the known world at this time, in the world we know much about, the king of Nineveh was the most powerful man on earth. And that means that he's not going to give up his power to turn around and follow some person who issues one word of prophecy. And I have a suspicion that Jonah offered that one word under his breath. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Please don't turn. I'd like to see you burn. I think that's how Jonah prophesied. I mean, that's kind of what I think. That, and yet Nineveh is led by a king who's more powerful than anybody else in the world. Whoever, Whatever political pe- person you're disenchanted with, you might want to think about this because this guy was worse. I guarantee it. 
he was worse. And he arose from the throne, removed his robe, and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. Sarcasm aside, this guy decided to follow God. In the moment, instantly take off his rich outer garments and put on sackcloth, just like David did after his son got sick, after his sin with Bathsheba, just as, as so many other people in the Old Testament did when they realized they were sinning before God. He put on this sackcloth and he put ashes on his head and covered his body all around him. And he sat there like any common beggar and he said, I'm a mess. God has called me out and God's right and I'm wrong. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. This king doesn't know, but he's quoting somebody in that passage. There's this great argument in the middle of Exodus between God and Moses. And the people of Israel have sinned, and they have fallen into sin. And Moses stands up before God and says, don't destroy him. And God says, Moses, get out of the way. I'm going to destroy him. They argue back and forth. It's a five-point argument that goes back and forth. And the language there is that Moses keeps saying, God, turn and relent. Those two words, exactly the same words that the king of Nineveh uses here. And eventually God says, okay, fine, I'll relent and I'll turn. And I'll be with the Israelites and I'll be their God still, even though they've sinned. God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish, says the king. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. What a story. Come on, what a story. You just got to stop. If we never preached this, if you just sat and thought about it, if you never got taught but just read this thing and realized the irony of this guy who issues the worst prophecy probably in the whole Old Testament and the biggest city maybe in the world at that point, it's estimated about 120,000 people live there. We live in a world with mega cities today. Urbanization has taken over. You know, Mexico City is over 20 million. New York City is 10 million. Chicago is 3.5 million. Philly is 1.5 million. This is six times Pottstown, and yet that's maybe the biggest city around, 120,000 people. And Jonah shows up in the middle of it, and he issues this tiny little prophecy, and those 120,000 people, not only do they turn, but they stop eating. They stop feeding their babies. They stop feeding their goats. They're serious, right? Everything they could do to possibly convince the God of the universe, who they did not know, but who they realized was watching them, they said, okay, we're going to turn. We're going we're gonna to hope. That God, we're going to relent from our sin and hope that God relents from his judgment. And what I love about this story is it shows us the human heart in the middle of it because Jonah expects none of it. An unexpected revival. And where is it unexpected? Who is it unexpected by? It's unexpected by anybody who knows the Assyrians. And it's also unexpected by anybody who has the heart of Jonah. Jonah understands some things about God. He probably had a whole really good understanding of the Old Testament. He probably knew that God was a few things. And in the book of Jonah, we catch on to these things that he knew about God. He knew that God created the world. When there's a storm on the Mediterranean Sea, who do you go to? Well, God created the sea, right? It tells us he separated the sea from the sky on the second day of creation. The third day of creation, he separated the dry land from the sea. That means that Jonah is in the territory that God is in control of. And he understands, okay, well, then I'm a mess and I need to turn myself into God. And this God judges. And so he has a theology built on these two things. That's great Jewish theology in the Old Testament, by the way. God creates, God judges. 
two good things that God does. So when somebody messes with you, you go to God the judge and you say, hey, he's messing up. He's sinning against me. When you have problems with your crops, you go to God and you say, you're the creator, God. Can you make sure my grain grows? Can you make sure my goats start having babies again? They're not, they're not having fawns the way they're supposed to. Or kids, I guess they're called. Well, that's Jonah's perspective. But it's the wrong perspective because he missed in between the lines who God actually is. What's more is we always miss who God is when we don't know him personally, right? When we don't have a sense for how God is speaking in the moment and we just build what we think about things on the God we've seen in the past, maybe it's just in the scriptures, when we don't have our heart inflamed with passion that connects us to who God actually is in the moment, what we end up doing is creating rules about God. And those rules maybe aren't called guidelines for life, but they are guidelines for what we think about God. What do we know about God? He creates. So good. Well, there it is. A little bit of a dry fact, right? God judges. Oh, okay. God judges. We're inspired by this God now. He creates and he judges. Listen to what God says about himself in this story as opposed to what Jonah says. He says, I love my creation. I don't just create. I like what I create. I'm an artist who's looking at all of these beautiful colors. I was Friday night at a golf course officiating at a wedding and the storm clouds were rolling over and we were hoping that it wouldn't rain. You know, it was just, and Shelby and I literally stopped and it was one of her coworkers that, that was getting married and we just prayed, God, stop the rain. And it didn't rain. I felt one drop the whole night. I felt one drop. I was officiating at this thing and there's a violin out there and on the, on the, on the green. I thought it was going to go bad and it didn't. It was just absolutely beautiful. Green everywhere, blue overhead. And then the clouds, you know, when clouds, periodically cover the sky and some of them are dark and then others of them are light and then the sun breaks. I mean, it couldn't have been more beautiful. Just an absolutely, God loves creation. Do you realize that dogs don't see in color? Have you ever known that? Deer don't either. Why did God give us the people of his creation the ability to see beauty in color? That's a beautiful shirt you have on, buddy. It's yellow. It's just, it's there. And it says, look, that's a beautiful something. We have all this desire to dress in color because we see the beauty of what God meant and we're created in his image and he loves us enough to create art for us to look at. And that means God is a God who loves art. And the art that he created is different than the Mona Lisa or some Rembrandt. It is the love of a creation that is all around us. And it's broken and yet it's beautiful. He doesn't just create. That's just theology. He loves to create. The turn of the last century, there's this great Catholic thinker named G.K. Chesterton. He was a Fleet Street journalist in London. And he once said, maybe God is younger than us. We get old in our creating. We get tired. Don't let us get away from the TV. We just want to keep clicking, you know. And he says, maybe that's not how God is at all. Maybe God creates every petal on a daffodil unique and different because he just likes to create petals on daffodils. Maybe he creates every flower in all of creation specific. Maybe he has in his mind how to create the intricacy and the uniqueness of creation. He loves to create, says Chesterton. We get tired and we say, don't make us create anymore. We're almost 65. Punch that card in and get that social security. Let's, let's give up on this whole thing called giving of ourselves passionately. God doesn't stop. He just keeps going. He's relentless in his passion about creation. That's not all that he's passionate about. It says that he's compassionate about the people that he's created as well. And he's not just compassionate about Jews. And he's not just compassionate about white people or African-American people or Latina people. He's, he's absolutely passionate about people wherever they're found on this planet. 700 or 
excuse me, seven billion plus of us. And he is passionate about everyone and he understands the character of each one and he knows the image that he created them in and he loves to see them become something that that they were created to be. And he realizes how enslaved we are and how broken we are in the middle of all he had hoped for us. And you see that in the story of Nineveh, right? Jonah doesn't see it because Jonah's got a God who judges and a God who creates. But when you hear the nuances of who God is and you let go of the rules, then you start to believe that this God has compassion and that means he feels stuff. And that means that on every street in Nineveh are little children who are growing up that God loves deeply. And there are mothers who are worried about those children and wondering if their king will take them off to war and whether those sons will come back and whether those daughters will be abused and damaged. And they're worrying and being concerned about the security of those kids. And God is walking the streets of Nineveh. He's walking the streets of every major city in this world. Do you think God cares about Tokyo? Do you think God cares about San Francisco? Do you think God cares about Bangkok? Do you think God cares about Nairobi? Do you think God cares about Pottstown? Can you hear the brokenness of this God when he's looking at people and he sees their lives going the wrong way? He says, I love creation and I love to create and I love people and I created them because I love them and I want them to respond to me. I want to have a conversation with them. When I saw that little girl in that prayer time, it's just weird to see stuff like that, I know. And some of you are going, I can't believe our pastors are like that. Eh, talk to me afterwards. We are like that, but whatever. You know, God speaks to us in this way. And there's this understanding about what God wants to hear. You know, what I heard him say is, I want my children to respond to me. In this neighborhood, I have put people here, missionaries here, because I want them to build a response out of the people of this neighborhood that could only come from these people. There was a worship that was supposed to come from Nineveh, and it was a worship that was going to be very unlike what was supposed to come from Jerusalem or from Samaria or from some Israelite city. God has a plan, and he has compassion on people. And Jonah is an unexpected revivalist because he doesn't believe in revival because he doesn't have the right idea about God. Some of us sit here today and we're in the same place, right? William Paul Young wrote this, and I thought it was just fabulous, and I'm going to try to incorporate it into our thoughts. He said, enforcing rules, especially in its more subtle expressions like responsibility and expectation, is a vain attempt to create certainty out of uncertainty. Jonah wanted certainty about who God was, and that means that God stayed in the temple in Jerusalem, and God didn't get out there to places that are crazy like Nineveh. And we can believe and trust in this stable God because we don't want to trust that he can go do amazing things anywhere out there because we want him to be our God and not their God because if he's our God, we can control him and believe in him, and he's just ours. And this God said, I'm not tame. I don't stay in a box. I don't stay here and make you certain and stable just because you feel insecure. I am wild and untamed and crazy passionate about my people. And you can't keep me back here in Israel. I will go where I'm called to go. I will go where I want to go. Jonah wanted to call God to a responsibility, save the Israelites. Jonah wanted to have an expectation of God that he could trust in. But that was all a vain attempt to create certainty out of uncertainty. And we have a God who is absolutely faithful and extremely uncertain. I don't mean that he's anything less than faithful. When I say he's uncertain, I just mean you don't know what he's going to do next, right? You need to say amen to that. Amen. Amen. We don't know what this God is going to do next. We don't know who will. I would never have told you my sister would be in ministry. Never. All of my family's better than her, especially me. (laughs) We're all better people who followed better rules, and yet God... 
He's, that's a joke. That's a, that's a joke. And he looks at us and says, I know you're the older son in the prodigal story. That's what I was, you know. I was the kid who didn't get it wrong. She was the kid who did get it wrong. And the father ran out of the house and grabbed her on the side of the road and said, I love you. Put this ring on your finger and let me put a robe on you, right? That's how God thinks. He loves the people where he loves them. He's not a certain God. And that older, that older son says, I've worked and I've earned all this favor with you. How can you just love my... He loves my sister every bit as much as he loves me. And I think he might listen to her more. Because he loves... I don't know what to do with that. That's how God is. He's uncertain. We don't put him in a box. We don't say this is what God's going to do. He's not going to do the same things here that he did 20 years ago. He's going to change the game for our church and he's going to change the game for our neighborhood because that's his character. And if you're here trying to make God be what he was back there, just get ready because he's not going to be. He's going to do it different. Rules cannot bring freedom. They only have the power to accuse. Young goes on to write, and I didn't include this in the quote. He says, but you love, as human beings, he says, we love to turn things into nouns. And they should be verbs. He says, we love to create expectation and responsibility. We want our spouses to be responsible. And we want our spouses to be to, to live up to expectations. And we want our God to be responsible and live up to expectations. And we want him to call us to responsibilities that we know we can check off a list and that we can expect that when we get that done, we're good with God. And God says, I want you to live expectantly. I want you to be an expectant Christian. Not one filled with expectations, but one who is expectant about what the next thing God is calling you to. You don't know what that's going to be. That's what it means to be expectant. It means to anticipate that God may want to do more. And Jonah was stuck in a mindset that said rules. And God is saying, listen, I'm in a mindset of deep passion and love for the people that are around you. What is wrong with you, Jonah? Where's your faith? We want to create things into responsibilities and expectations and young rights that we want to we should want to be responsive to our God and expectant about what he's going to do. You see how he turns those words around? It's not about responsibility and expectation. It's about living expectantly and living responsively. And when God calls, we hear and we listen and we go and we join him and be a part of what he's doing. The story of Jonah is the story of a guy who joined God unwillingly, who got like a choke collar on him, you know, and God just yanked him across continents, literally, across an ocean. He traveled all the way the wrong way and then got traveled back by a fish who spit him out in the same place where he came from. You just got to think about this. If you're walking away from God and you're not living expectantly today, look out. You might be the person who smells funny next Sunday. People who hang out and fish are people who do not smell good. The God of the universe has a plan for your life, and he is telling you to go someplace. I don't know where it is, and it may not be across some continent. It may be next door, but God is calling your name, and he is trusting that you're willing to live expectantly and responsively to his voice. The great writer of the New Testament, St. Paul, 13 letters strong, he writes in maybe his most famous chapter, these, three, these, these words, Roman, or 1 Corinthians 13, it says this line, it says that, that love is above everything else, right? And it builds this whole, we, we read it, Jay and Carol read it at Shelby and I's wedding, 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, and it ends with these words, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. We read these words, and you've read them before, and I've read them before, but let's think about them for a second, because what those words mean is a responsiveness to the word of God. When God speaks, do we listen? I'm going to skip a slide because we're out of time, but 
Just think with me for a second. Paul works these words into passage after passage in the New Testament. Faith means hearing the word of God and agreeing. Did Jonah hear the word of God? Absolutely. Was he sure that he heard the word of God? So sure that he purchased a ticket that probably cost a lot of money to go the opposite way. That's certainty about God. He was sure about God. He was sure at least that he heard him. But did he agree? No. Faith is being sure we've heard God, being certain of what we hope for in the words of Hebrews 11.1, 1, hearing the word of God and agreeing. Hope means expecting in that word, expecting the word to come to, to fruition, trusting that God wants to do something more than what we've seen so far, believing in him for God-sized visions, not us-sized visions. You might be living today in a picture of what God has done theologically on this world, and it's not enough. I just want you to know that will not be enough. It's beautiful and it's important. And if you somehow lose the sight of the cross and what it did for us, if we start losing the atonement and the picture of what God has done in our past, we will miss out completely. You can never leave that behind. But you can never trust that you're going to see all of what God wants for your life just because you're looking back. You have to look forward. You have to hear God in the now, that's faith, and then you have to expect that he's going to build this thing in a way that we don't know where it's going to go. It's going to be uncertain. It's going to be wild. We have to live expectantly. We have to live responsively. And then we have to act lovingly. Love for Paul means something so different. I married this couple Friday night, and they were, Shelby said they were cute. I'll just say that's what she said about them. And, uh, they were, you know, it was just a really cool wedding, beautiful. And just at the end when they hugged and kissed, you know, this whole thing, it was like, I pronounce you man and wife, and it was hilarious, you know. And I had, at the rehearsal, that he, he tried to, you know, when I said the line, you know, in the rehearsal, I said, I now pronounce you man and wife. And he leaned in, and I stuck my notes for the sermon in between their mouths. And, you know, they got right here, and it just hit them. And so at, as, as they were about to kiss each other with all this expectation, I saw his eyes look at me like, are you going to stick those notes in there again? You know, it's just this moment. And, and we, he just laughed, and then, you know, they had their moment. And I pronounced them man and wife, and I, I sent them down the aisle, introducing them as the new Mr. and Mrs. It was beautiful, right? And we have a picture of love in our hearts that looks like that. And yet love for Paul looks like something more. More. It looks like acting on the word of God with passion, joining him in whatever he's passionate about and responsibly praying into it expectantly, hopefully, and then believing so much that we step out and do the first thing that comes to mind in obedience to God, living it out. It doesn't mean that you leave your heart behind and you just start to obey God with your hands, but it doesn't mean you just say, I'm going to put my heart out there and keep your hands back here. It means both of yourselves, both sides of you, are engaged with all of what you have. And you put it all on the line and you say, yes, Lord, I am here to act lovingly. I am here to operate. That's what faith, hope, and love mean. These three remain, says Paul. Everything else, you can speak with the tongues of men and of angels. You'll be just a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. You'll be nothing at all. Jonah didn't even want to be a resounding gong. He wanted to be a tiny little voice in the middle of a gigantic city. And he wanted to just speak this little line and he wanted to hope that he got out alive because he was afraid the king was going to kill him. I guarantee it. Every prophet's afraid they're going to die. That's what prophets have to be afraid of because when you speak the truth this harshly, that's what happens to you. He didn't want to be a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. He didn't want to be loving. He wanted to be as little and as tiny and as insignificant as he possibly could and hope that he got home on a camel very, very soon. That's what Jonah was hoping for. And God said, no, I have a plan for this city, and it's far beyond what you've seen so far. Let me tell you that I believe that God has a plan for us. And God has a plan for you. Shelby and I 
well, I'll back up. Last fall, I made a list of people to pray for. There weren't people in there. I pray for our church list all the time, and you're on it. Whoever you are in this room, I think, unless you're new, I, I, I've prayed. And some of you I prayed for this morning. I just get up and I pray through a list of names every morning. God just uses that time. It's beautiful. But I made a list, another list, of people that I thought God put on my heart that are around our region, and I started to trust God to move in their lives. And I was unprepared. And I have not liked what happened when I started praying. You might not want to ask me to pray for you after this story. Because I started to pray for these people, and God put them on my heart. And, and a couple times, outside of our church, these people, they, they got caught in sin right after I started praying. I started to pray, God, get a hold of these people's lives and do passionately things that you would only do, only God could do in them. And I want to see you. I want to trust you to do amazing stuff in this community. And I want to trust you for this person and that person. And those people had to come clean about the things that were in their heart. And I didn't do that. And I didn't know it was there. And God started to bring this stuff out. Some of it hurt me, believe it or not. Some of, one of those things was actually against me. And I was hurt. And I started to pray this list and I started to believe that God wanted to do something in these lives and I started to expect him and I wrote down the prayers and I actually have them in my journal and at the end of that whole thing, what happened was I got hurt and they got hurt because the truth came out. And I started to ask God, what, what is that about? I start praying for people and they get more broken. Nobody's going to ever want them to show up at the hospital room and pray before a surgery if this is how it works, God. You know? And then I started to think about it. You know, Jesus said, the truth will set you free, right? And I started to realize that as I was praying into people's lives, and there's nothing special about me about this, I just started to pray, God was trying to set those people free. He's trying, trying to break into their lives and get him to be the chief love, the high goal, the hope. He's trying to get them to be anticipative, anticipatory, expectant, responsive. He was trying to get them back. And I didn't know that. I just started to pray. Just innocent prayers, you know, just God bless them, help their marriage, and then their marriage, turns out, had to have some truth poured into it, and that truth hurt like wildfire. When we start to pray and believe God, things change. And they don't always change in the ways that we wish they would because he's a wild God who does absolutely massive stuff, and we don't know what this is going to look like, but God saved Nineveh because one man stepped out, and he didn't. Need, and, and God used this man in spite of all of his inadequacies, which looks like the longest list possible. It's looked, it looks like Jonah didn't even turn in a resume for this job, right? He just said, I'm not good at all at any of it. I'm not a prophet. Just leave me alone, God. And God says, no, deliver the word. One line, and it changes the whole city. God is calling you, and I don't know what he's calling you to, but he's calling you to believe that he's speaking around you. And then he's calling you to pray into that. And then he's calling you to act into that. He's asking you to be a person of faith. And then he's asking you to be a person of hope. And then he's asking you to be a person who acts lovingly on what you hear. Shelby and I made a whole new list of people, by the way. After that, we made a list that together we own. We share it about people we want to pray for. We prayed for it yesterday. And we started to say, okay, God, we want to see what you're going to do in these people's lives. Because if, you're, if we're going to trust you for the people around us and we want to trust you for our culture to be set free from all of the stuff that's entangling it, then we need to do some things. We need to believe some things. One last thought. You need to remember this. Whatever God happens, a few weeks ago we talked about worship. Or Tim, Tim shared these words. He said you, you, we need to believe in worship workouts. We need to start acting on our worship in disciplined fashion. And we need to believe in transformed lives, believing that our church is called to this. And then we need to believe in the wider community and what God wants to do in it. Well, we both thought there's something missing in that. And that's just the word remember. 
We need to remember what God has done so far and what he's doing now. And we need to build it into our DNA. And I just want to challenge you that whatever you do as far as faith this year, write it down. Write down what God has said so far. Ask that question of yourself. What has God said to you? And write down the answer. And then start to hope. What are you hoping for him to do in the future? And get, just the word, get beyond your kids' lives and your grandkids and start to believe for your neighborhood or for your city or for your workplace, okay? Go beyond to people you would never think of as people you're supposed to pray for and start to ask God, I'm going to watch this person and I'm going to pray for them and I'm going to trust that you're going to move in their life. How do you want to work? And just start to pray and expect that God wants to pour his life into them in ways that you haven't seen so far. And then third, what are you going to do about it? Ask what God would have you do and write these things down so that you remember, so that you can look back years from now and see how God is growing your faith and changing who you are to become an expectant Christian and not just one filled with expectation. How you become a responsive person that follows God instead of just one who's concerned with the responsibilities. Nobody's supposed to break the Ten Commandments, right? That's just how it's supposed to be. That's a list of responsibilities. But what if we loved passionately in our marriages, not just avoided adultery? What if we loved passionately in our communities and didn't just avoid murdering those people who cut us off in traffic? What if we absolutely lived lives of integrity, didn't just avoid stealing in the biggest sense, but avoided uh, all of the sin that can go along with that by passionately saying, God, we're going to trust you with our resources? What if we didn't always need more? Like that word about covening says, because we're so filled with God, because we're living expectant lives that are responsive to him. Join me in prayer.